Hello and welcome to this vidcast which is devoted to Salesforce, a famous company operating in a SaaS industry. But also a very interesting illustration of the complex relationship, sometimes, between value growth and governance. Salesforce is created in 1999 when the internet bubble is at its maximum. It's created by a former executive of Oracle, Mark Benioff, with three friends and partners. Larry Ellison, the founder and CEO of Oracle, is going to invest by himself in Salesforce. The company is selling a software as a service in a business which is Customer Relationship Management, the CRM quite famous. The early years of 2000 are going to be quite tough because of the explosion of the internet bubble. But still, in 2004, the company gets listed and the symbol, the ticker, is going to be CRM, which basically stands for the business as it is. The value when the company is listed is $1.2 billion. 20 years later, the market capitalization is $180 billion, which is outstanding. Still, it's not the maximum value that the company reached. The value was reached mid-2022, and the maximum was $300 billion. So we can observe a drop by 40% in the value of Salesforce. In the meantime, the NASDAQ, the reference indicator, went down by only 25%. We'll get back to this point a little bit later. When you observe the evolution of the stock price of Salesforce against versus NASDAQ, its reference, right? what happened? You have three periods. The first period is from 2004, the listing, to roughly 2018. The stock price of Salesforce is growing at a much higher rate than NASDAQ. Then Salesforce and NASDAQ are going to be perfectly correlated from this moment to about mid 2022. And then NASDAQ is down, Salesforce is down, very much down, and a little bit up during these last weeks or months. Now, traditionally, when you look at a company, you're questioning the relationship between growth, performance, and value, and value creation. What about growth? The growth was absolutely outstanding. This is a fantastic commercial success, Salesforce. The company was hardly existing in 2000, and today the sales figure is more than $30 billion, with a fantastic growth rate. The growth rate was quite outstanding, but not very significant in the early 2000s. It went down to stabilize at the level of about 30% per year in 2010. Then 2015 it goes down to 25%, goes up a little bit, goes down to 25%. And the bad news in 2022 is that the growth rate is only between quotes 20%. The company is selling two kinds of products and services, subscription and support. This is CRM, and this is definitely the most important segment. There is another segment, which is about professional services and other services. So the company is selling software and service, predominantly software. 
This is good news because the profit is generated by the segment subscription and support with a gross margin of about 80%. Gross margin is, you remember, sales minus cost of sales, cost of manufacturing. It's not about manufacturing, so it's quite traditional that gross profit, gross margin is very high in this kind of business. As far as professional services are concerned, it's hardly at break-even, very often a little bit in the red, sometimes positive. But this is why the gross profit of the company is a little bit less than subscription and support, but it's not very much boosted by professional services. Now, the gross margin is one point. The rest of the PL is absolutely fundamental, and we have to look at the indirect costs, operating expenses. Here we can observe something quite traditional for a company in this kind of industry. Sales and marketing, it was absolutely predominant, and through economies of scale, it goes down little by little. About 20 years ago, it was almost 60%. Today, it's a bit more than 40%. There's a trend downward. The cost of sales is a little bit higher, but not that much. We observe the same economies of scale for general and admin, a bit less than 20 today a bit less than 10, so economies of scale 10% of revenues, this is quite important, and research and development, which is a cost in the P&L, but in business economics, it's an investment. It's gradually increasing from a little bit less than 10 to a bit more than 15, 16%, and it's stabilized the last 10 years or so. What is the consequence of the evolution of these operating expenses? You remember, growth, absolutely outstanding up to 2022. The sales figure reaches more than 30 billion. What about the EBITDA? EBITDA is a figure which is less subject to discussions and confrontation than EBIT. Keep that in mind. This is going to be the next discussion. What about EBITDA? The company was generating strongly negative EBITDA at the very beginning, which is quite normal. You create the company, etc. Then it's going to turn EBITDA positive quite quickly. In 2005, the EBITDA already represents 15% of revenues. Then it's going to go up to 20, stabilize at the level of 20. And if you observe the last 8 to 10 years, gradually the EBITDA is a growing percentage to revenues. And today it's about 30%, a bit more, quite stable during the last four years. Now, what about EBIT? EBIT is always a big subject to discussion because the question is, do you use GAAP or non-GAAP figures, generally accepted accounting principles? According to the accounting authorities, calculation of operating expenses should incorporate amortization of some acquisition-related expenses, such as technology, capitalized R&D expenses, and so on, so forth, market share, and so on. Of course, you don't amortize the goodwill Sometimes you have to make an impairment, but you don't amortize. Then non-GAAP says there should not be any amortization of this kind. GAAP says you have to take into account as wages and salaries, stock-based compensation. Stock-based compensation means that you are going to pay your people with restricted stock units, stock options, and so on and so forth, which will later on have an impact on dilution. Today it's non-cash, but it is considered as wages and salaries. 
a non-GAAP perspective on stock-based compensation is that it should not be treated as an expense, but it should be treated as potential and speculative dilution. Now, if you look at the financial communication of the company in its last annual report, the annual report full year 2023, 2023 because the company is closing its account on the 31st of January. So 2023 is predominantly 2022, but the company is also proposing some guidance, non-contractual forecast for 2024, which is predominantly 2023, obviously. The calculation of the operating margin using the gap should lead to a guidance of about 10.8%, a bit less than 11%. But if you add amortization of purchased intangibles, again, technology and so on, if you add up stock-based compensation and some restructuring expenses, the non-gap operating margin, as it is perceived as relevant by the company, is 27%. The difference is 16%, which is absolutely not negligible. Now, when you look at the evolution of the return on sales of the company, EBIT, current published EBIT versus non-GAAP EBIT and EBITDA. We already discussed the EBITDA, but the difference between current published EBIT and non-GAAP EBIT is quite significant. If you look at the current EBIT, it's close to zero, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, and today 3%. The non-GAAP EBIT is about 20%. It slightly changes the perspective you might have on the commercial profitability of the company. Now, you remember that return on sales is just the first chapter of the calculation of return capital. The Dupont de Nemours formula tells you that there's a second chapter, which is about the productivity, capital intensity, starting with operating cycle and working capital requirement. The working capital requirement is traditionally made of inventories plus receivables minus payables. There is no inventories in a SaaS business, obviously. If you look at accounts receivable and accounts payable, accounts receivable is a bit more than accounts payable, quite stable. And there is a difference between these two, which is slightly positive, quite normal stuff. But there is something very interesting in terms of operating liabilities, which is unearned revenues, deferred revenue. And it comes from the fact that companies, customers are paying in advance. It represents 200 days of sales, more than six months of sales. Now, if you observe the cash conversion cycle in days of revenues, it's receivables minus payables minus unearned revenues, and it is strongly negative by 150 days. And it is very stable and predictable. Very important for the next discussion we have. Now, as far as assets to know is concerned, the second part of the calculation is about non-current assets. Tangible, investment, capex, and intangible acquisitions. The perspective on capital intensity differs very much between tangible and intangible. Capital expenditures about 10 years ago, 2013, represented about 7% of sales. And now it's 2.5% of revenues. So you understand it's significantly less. Well, we are not in a manufacturing company. So the company was first creating its infrastructure and today is developing smoothly the infrastructure. It does not cost a lot. This is why a dollar of property, plant and equipment 
tangible fixed asset generates today $8.5 in revenue. So it's quite light. Acquisition intangibles, that's a completely different story because the company in the past invested a lot in acquisitions, external growth. The last two major acquisitions made by Salesforce are Tableau in 2019 for almost $15 billion. And recently, 2021, Slack for a little bit more than $27 billion. But when you buy a company like Tableau or Slack, you don't buy factories, you don't pay for the balance sheet, you pay for the technology, and you pay for the goodwill. So the goodwill figure dramatically increased in the balance sheet of Salesforce, and now a dollar of goodwill in the balance sheet generates 0.6 dollars of revenue in a P&L. So you understand that the capital intensity comes from the acquisition. As a consequence, the assets turnover of the company is almost the one you can observe for real estate companies, right? Significantly less than one. Why? Because of acquisitions. It was a bit more than one up to 2018, and today it's significantly less than one, about 0.6. Now the row say, the return on capital employed is a consequence of return on sales quite high, you remember. If you take non-GAAP EBIT multiplied by the assets turnover, which is very low. If you calculate a kind of published and current ROSE, as the return on sales is close to zero and the assets turnover is very low, the ROSE is close to zero. If you look at non-GAAP ROSE, you have a return on sales which is about 20% and an assets turnover, which is about 0.6. So the non-GAAP process is just hardly greater than 10%. Of course, the return on capital non-GAAP is correlated with the market to book. You remember the market to book is relative value creation. You divide the enterprise value, market cap plus debt, by the capital employed. And then if it's more than one, observe that there is a relative value creation. As value is supposedly coming from performance, Rosé and market to book are correlated for most companies, including Salesforce. But that's not enough. There's another correlation which is very interesting to observe. What the market to book should be if the company was not growing at all, which is obviously not the case of Salesforce. And then the formula is simply after-tax return capital divided by weighted average cost of capital. And you compare that with the actual market to book in which you have not only the performance but the anticipated growth for the company. What you can observe is that the gap was quite high between the actual market to book and the zero growth market to book about 10 years ago. And the gap is narrowing. And that's quite consistent with what we were observing, the growth rate of sales force is reducing, even though it is still quite high. So it's quite normal that in the mind of investors, the actual with growth market to book is getting closer, even though it is quite far from the market to book without any growth. So, so far, a consistent picture and no big surprise. Now, there's something which is quite interesting when you observe the stock price and the fundamental value of a company. What is in the mind of investors when the stock price is down? Does it mean that it's about less growth or it's about less performance? Now, I propose you to evaluate and calculate the fundamental value of sales force. You remember that the discounted free cash flow method 
calculates free cash flows during two periods, fast growth and then stabilized growth, long-term growth. And we discount these free cash flows at the weighted average cost of capital. The WAC for the company is quite easy to calculate. There is no debt in the balance sheet or almost no debt in the balance sheet. Then the WAC is the same as the cost of equity. Cost of equity, long-term government bond rate, no big deal. Plus a market risk premium of 6% for the United States multiplied by the beta. And the beta, we'll see that later, is quite stable, predictable at the level of 1%. Well, the WAC is quite easy to calculate. It's about 8%. Now, we need to calculate the free cash flow. What about the free cash flow? EBITDA minus capital expenditures minus increase in working capital requirement minus taxes. What is very interesting is as the working capital requirement is strongly negative, any increase in the revenues of the company is driving the working capital requirement more negative, and what is very interesting, and I will demonstrate that with a calculation in a few minutes, is that the working capital requirement increase negative, pays for the capital expenditure. So very much what is at stake is the level of EBITDA. I suggest two sets of assumptions. First, we keep growth at the level of 20%. You remember it was 20 in 2022, 25 to 30% before. EBITDA, we dramatically reduce EBITDA from 31 to 10%. Then we ask the spreadsheet to make the calculation and we get the fundamental value, which is $230, which is significantly more than the current stock price of the company, which, when I recall this viscous, is $179. Well, the market is even more pessimistic. Second set of assumptions for the valuation. Now I keep the EBITDA at the level of 30%, which is its current figure, and I reduce growth. No more 20%, 10% for the next 10 years, and then maturity. And then the fundamental value, spreadsheet said, is 238, quite close to the former figure, when the current stock price is 179 again. So you understand that the market is very much dramatically downgrading Salesforce. Now, what happened very recently? There were three activists, three activists in the same boat, which is quite remarkable. And it is an honor to welcome Elliott Management, Starboard Capital and Value Act. And what do they say, these guys? They say that the margins can be improved. Yes, but when you observe the evolution, you understand that there is a, an improvement in the margin year after year, might be, can be accelerated. Okay, the price is undervalued. That's quite sure. And the company should distribute its cash instead of making risky acquisitions, which are paid far beyond their fundamental value. That's a quite interesting point. Because the company is generating plenty of free cash flow, now, the question is, when you generate a very positive free cash flow, what do you do with the cash? Do you distribute the cash, dividend, and or share buyback? Or do you invest this cash in developing the future, etc., of the company? Let's have a look at the features of the free cash flow. You remember EBITDA is 30% plus. Working capital requirement, minus 30% of revenues. And it's quite stable and predictable. Then a revenue growth makes the working capital requirement turn even more negative, and you generate cash. Interestingly, from 2017 to 2022, the negative 
working capital requirement generated $6 billion of cash. It went down from minus 4 to minus 10. In the meantime, the accumulated capital expenditures were $4 billion. So you understand that the operating cycle is generating $6 billion when your property plant and equipment are consuming 4. That's quite good for the free cash flow. And that's quite predictable. So the company is generating recurring revenues. Why? Because the customers are paying on a regular basis something which they need. Costs are more or less relatively controlled, so the free cash flow can be considered as significant, this is for sure, and predictable. Now, when it is the case, it means that you have a strong debt capacity and or you have the ability and the capacity to pay a significant and recurrent dividend to your shareholders and or to return cash to shareholders through share buyback. There is an interesting theory about the relationship between managers and shareholders, and it is the agency theory. The agency theory says, you know what, the managers they have their own interest, the shareholders they want to maximize their value in the long term, and it's very difficult to get a perfect alignment between the interests of the managers and the interests of the shareholders. Now, what might happen in a company when the free cash flow is extremely positive? What do you do with the free cash flow? Some free cash flow might be invested by the managers for their own benefits. For example, their ego, their reputation, their hubris. But it might be also free cash flow invested in negative net present value investment. It happens. There's an interesting case which I was privileged enough to observe in the past. Avon Product, a company in the cosmetics business, which was standing alone, then was acquired by Cerberus, then was sold to Natura, which is a company in the cosmetics industry based in Brazil. The company was generating, depending on the years, return capital of 60, 70, 90, 100%. Do you imagine the strongly positive free cash flows generated by the company? And then you are the executive committee and you visit the board and you say we generated plenty of free cash flows, but we have absolutely no idea about how to use the money. The board is going to say, okay, guys, your pay do have ideas. Then what do you do? You bring ideas. And the managers of Avon products demonstrated, convinced the board that they had to diversify in medical residences for elderly people, which is a little bit far from the core business. What happened? It was a disaster. As a consequence, the board fired the managers and the company went back to its core business, which was generating huge free cash flows. And then they said, we are not going to invest these free cash flows in any additional uh, and curious diversification. We are going to bring back the money to the shareholders. They started paying huge dividends, massively buying back the shares. So when the company is putting some debt in the balance sheet, then you have to allocate part of the free cash flow to pay the finance expense and to repay the debt. When the shareholders are voting in favor of significant dividend payments and share buybacks, you have to allocate the free cash flow to pay the dividend and to buy back the shares. Then the free cash flow, which is in the hands of the managers to do what they like, is significantly reduced. Introducing debt in the balance sheet, introducing dividend policy and shares buyback is a way to control managers. Now, Salesforce, for the first time in its life, decided to buy back some of its shares 
in 2022 for only $4 billion, which is quite far from the free cash flow. Now, when you go back to the last two big acquisitions of the company, table, data analytics, Okay, when you are selling software about understanding your customers, data analytics is obviously very consistent with the business of the company. Now, the price which was paid is 20 times the revenues. Unfortunately, it's a metric which is quite common. 30 times the losses between quotes. Of course, you don't buy a company for its losses, you buy a company for its profit. But that's the way it works. Now, the company is not profitable, but it's a good complement. What about Slack? Slack is about messaging. The company paid 27 billion revenues generated by Slack, 0.6 billion dollars, and losses of more than 1 billion dollars. So you understand that's a very high price. The rationality which was provided is we want to get into the cloud business, we want to confront against Microsoft. Azure, Google, Google Cloud product, etc. And this is why we need Slack. Some of the people said that Salesforce tried to buy LinkedIn in 2016 and Microsoft bought LinkedIn. So it was an opportunity loss. Microsoft paid $26 billion for LinkedIn in 2016 and today Salesforce is paying $27 billion for Slack. It's quite the same. Maybe the motivation of the acquisition of Slack was not repeating the loss, the opportunity loss of LinkedIn a second time. And maybe it was a priority in the decision-making process against um, the obsession of a positive net present value. This is just an opinion and an assumption. Now we observe the departure of the two CEOs of Tableau and Slack. That's not really a positive signal. There are some rumors about the integration, which is quite difficult. The cultures of these three companies are absolutely fundamentally different. Maybe integration is a little bit difficult. It does not mean that Salesforce is not a good investor. The company has a real talent as an investor, but as a venture capitalist. There's a very interesting concept at Salesforce, which is what they name strategic investment. In fact, Salesforce is a VC investor, rather in late stage. They started making quite significant investment in 2009, and they realized their first sales in 2016, and it was quite successful. They invested in Zoom, which we use on a regular basis, HubSpot, which interestingly is a very strong and aggressive competitor of Salesforce, Snowflake, you remember the vidcast in March 2021 about the IPO of the company, etc., etc. So the company was quite successful. The cumulative investment made by Salesforce in this project is about $5.5 billion. So far, the company has recorded capital gains of $4.1 billion, though they are quite good at that. Now, before I conclude this vidcast, Let's have a look at the beta of Salesforce. The beta of Salesforce is quite close to 1. It's been close to 1 for a while now, even though it is a little bit up these last weeks and months. But why is it quite low? Because the company is quite recurrent in its business. Now, when the beta is 1, and when the Nasdaq is down by 25%, the company's stock price should be down by 25%. 
this is a normal return. But when the company stock price is down by 40%, then you can calculate an abnormal return of 15%, which is a difference between minus 25, what it should be, and minus 40, what it is. Now, when the company stock price started getting down, the market value of equity was 300 billion. So the abnormal loss in terms of value is 15% of 300 billion, which is $45 billion. It is the exact value of Tableau purchasing price and Slack purchasing price. So it is as if the value of these two acquisitions were just evaporated on stock markets. I strongly recommend you to think about this similarity. Thank you very much.